Welcome into Better Advertising with Better AMS. I am your host, Justin Knuckles, and today's guest with me is Kyle Peters from Nestle. Kyle's story is amazing, having launched his own ice cream brand as a solopreneur and created from losing his mom to colon cancer and wanting to give her a comfort food loaded with the nutrition that she needed. We'll talk about one of private label sellers' most feared questions. Do I cut this product and stop investing in it? Kyle has some great insights around this topic, in addition to user-generated content and the wisest investments we all could be making in 2023 with our current economic environment and uncertainty. So with that, let's get into it with Kyle now. Welcome in, everybody. We are here today with our guest, Kyle Peters. A little bit of background on our guest today. Previously, the founder at Carter & Oak. Now he's over at Nestle as a growth hacker. Additionally, does some advisory work on the side for startups and founders. And that is a very short, uh, condensed explanation. So I'll throw it over to you, Kyle, to give us a little bit more color into your background. Yeah, for sure. So thanks for having me. Um, You know, I graduated college in 2015, started my company shortly after that in uh, October of 2016. Um, My mom had battled stage four colon cancer for seven years. She passed August 1st, 2016. And during her battle, really, you know, got to see that after her treatments, she would have, you know, like a sore throat, lack of appetite, high sensitivity to smell, um, and really just kind of struggled with getting any type of quality nutrition. And so she would oftentimes turn to uh, ice cream, ice pops, pudding, different products like that to really kind of, yeah. you know, soothe her throat. It was also just comforting and just something that was easier to eat than like a whole meal. Full meals weren't really appetizing. Protein shakes weren't doing it for her either. So I wanted to blend the comfort and indulgence of the ice cream she was already eating, but with the nutrition that she was missing out on. So that's really what uh, what I started working on and developing with Carter and Oak and uh, started that in my dad's kitchen and had a couple bad co-packing experiences uh, in the next year. And then, you know, found my own facility uh, in Westchester, Pennsylvania, managed all the production myself there for, for the duration of the business, worked with companies like uh, with Marriott, um, independent uh, healthcare facilities like assisted living homes and retirement communities, uh, worked with some NFL organizations, uh, sold them to natural grocery, uh, was able to get our natural grocery sales to three times the category, uh, velocity average. So did all right there. And then, um, now I work at Nestle, uh, as a growth hacker, like you said, and, and really help kind of lead our, um, innovation across a few different categories and, and kind of really like focusing on, uh, the consumer side. So quantitative, qualitative research and insights, um, helping out on like the communication side, uh, brand positioning or product positioning for, you know, whatever the innovations that we're working on, stuff like that. So every project's different. It's always, always kind of changing. I don't necessarily play the same role on every project. We always bring in cross-functional teams. Um, and then, you know, like you said too, I'll also do like a little bit of advising and consulting on the side and, and sticking, uh, you know, with the startup world that, um, you know, I love so much. Yeah, no, I mean, I love your story about Carter and Oak and the story of how it started. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's an amazing creation. Of, you were looking for something in the market that did not exist. And mm-hmm. you're like, I'm going to step up and create this thing that I personally need. I know others need this. Mm-hmm. Um, and just doing that gave you so much experience to go into Nestle to say, I've seen it all. I've done it all myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can help you guys do the exact same. Um, so now at Nestle, are you really focused on the marketing aspects of like, like you said, consumer messaging, uh, product positioning, um, the quantitative data around advertising, even mm-hmm. that's kind of everything you oversee. So a lot of what I'm focused on, is, it's like the initial stuff, right? So everything, the projects that I'm on 
are we're trying to even find the opportunities, right? So it's to the projects I'm honored to identify and de-risk like white space opportunities for our existing brands or possibly new brands, right? So we're really looking to uncut, you know, maybe like we'll get a rough scope from the uh, our stakeholder team for whatever the project is. It's always a little bit different, um, a mix of kind of our, our senior leadership within a category or with, with uh, within a brand, and then a mix of like executive leadership that we have here in the U.S. as well. Um, get a rough scope from them. We then will kind of like work around that and go through like the ideation process, making prototypes. Well, the project teams always have myself and my colleague um, full time. And then we have a cross-functional team where they're usually just on one project at a time. And we call them like internal missions. And so uh, we'll pull somebody from like the a brand team, um, not always necessarily the brand that we're working on for the innovation. Then we'll have like a project manager uh, that could kind of come from like any part of the of the company. Um, we'll always have a product developer on the team, you know, different things like that that have the, different people that have these different skill sets. And then for me, yeah, it's really in the beginning pulling these insights that we have from existing resources. So like. Data Essentials, Mintel, IRI, whatever it is, uh, pulling data and insights from there to kind of help lead that innovation process and the, and the thought behind it. And then as we go through, I'm helping run and lead the quantitative and qualitative approach that we take for the specific project to understand, you know, what problem do we need to solve for consumers? And then in the solution that we then develop, What's the best way to position it for those consumers? How to speak to them? We'll run A/B tests on Facebook and Instagram, you know, different platforms to kind of understand what about the product and the potential positioning is really going to drive the most engagement and stuff. So we'll do that, and we get a rough idea, and then eventually, if you know, if our projects end up being a massive success, the best, the next best thing is we then move this into you know. Uh, another project that will live on like the base brand team and then they'll take it and they'll do a little bit more develop and a little bit more development. And then usually maybe it'll be like a two year out project. Right. So we, the, when we finish up the quickest, it'll maybe turn around and be like in a nationwide launch is like two years. So it still goes through a ton of iteration and, and more testing and everything else. But yeah, you know, we do a lot of, a lot of that work around uh, the communication side and understanding, but it is pretty earlier on in that process, um, really to de-risk and, and identify, hey, could this be good or, or not? Yeah, no, I understand that a bit better. That sounds like the dream scenario back from like when you were doing it yourself and shoot, even when I was in private label to bring all those experts in a room together and be like, you know, product design, I know, you know, consumer messaging and mm -hmm. positioning really well. Like, let's put our heads together mm -hmm. rather than figuring it all out yourself. Yeah. So you guys are really making those those fine tuning adjustments in the front end before you really start mm -hmm. investing a ton to to get this product to market uh, or at least scale the product to market yeah um so you can really perfect it with its niche target market um before yeah. blowing tons of marketing dollars right yeah absolutely i mean the, the whole thing is you know we wanted to and i can't say exactly what, how much it is that we spend on them of course but we can you know these projects for Nestle, especially, and really for even a lot of like mid-level companies, like we're not spending a lot of money. Right. And like, and my tolerance for a lot of money is really low considering I was a solo founder. And like I had to make $1 turn into two sometimes and try and figure some stuff out. Right. So it's a low yeah. number for, for Nestle standards, of course. Right. And, and we're looking to really complete these projects in like six months. So it's a truly like accelerated process, you know, going from just like idea to testing a product on shelf 
you know, in a small geographic location, right? So it could be like Philadelphia and like 30 locations, you know, with this specific retailer, um, seeing what the velocity looks like and everything, right? And so like, that'll be like the end of the project. And so, yeah, you know, we, we want to be able to take what we can, what's a relatively small investment for us to, you know, hey, this, this even sounds like it's a good idea. You know, we go and we build this team and we'll go and figure it out. And the, the thing that can be kind of tough, I think, for maybe people that have worked in big food, like their entire careers is it's abnormal to be like comfortable with like failing. Right. So if we uncover and go through a project and like it doesn't work out well and we I actually identify that this isn't uh, an approach that we should take to a specific category or we you know, find out that this product really doesn't have legs for us within our portfolio of brands. Um, that's a win, right? Like that feels like it's a failure because you're like, oh, we're not going to launch this product. But it's like, the reality is we just identified a space that we shouldn't be putting further investment in. And that's, that's, a, that's a massive win actually, right? Because now we can focus our efforts and dollars uh, in another place that we've identified as a really great opportunity. So it's it's taking the lean startup, real like scrappy mentality um, that so many founders are doing all the time and bringing it into this massive corporation that historically has maybe like not operated like that. And so uh, it's cool to see Nestle work to really, you know, put people in the right place to, to make those things happen um, and not just, you know, look at trends and try and make them their own, but really like start trends and, and find their own like true innovations, which I can I can confidently say that we are doing. I have a slight tangent question to that, that I know a lot of our listeners are going to be dying to know for you guys personally, what are those KPIs, even at a high level for when you decide this product is not working, we're done investing in it. Cause I know a lot of sellers have seen their products and maybe lose sales or try to launch a product that just never picked up. And they're like, how much do I keep investing before I just cut this thing and don't sell it anymore? Can't say exactly certain things, but like some metrics that we look at, right. Is we always kind of have like a goal and objective for whatever it is that we're running, right? Whether it's a, consu- a consumer test that I'm working on, or uh, it's an A-B test that we're running on Facebook, or it's units per SKU per week that we want to see in the shop test that we do at the end of the project, right? So ultimately, you know, theoretically, every project leading up to the shop test, we should have some pretty good confidence that like, hey, we do still feel pretty good that this is this is an opportunity. Otherwise, there's always potential for us to kind of pivot, you know, backtrack a little bit, see if maybe we can get a you know, a little bit more time on the project to, you know, maybe take a new path that we feel could be a better opportunity, right? So there could be a, a, a mid-project pivot to where we say, okay, this isn't the right path anymore. Actually, we should go and, and, and maybe explore this area, right? Um, there's potential for that. And that can be because, you know, once we go from kind of the concept and the idea without a physical product, it sounds great, but then maybe you go and you test the product with consumers and find out what you're promising sounds awesome, but what you're actually delivering on is really underwhelming, right? And you don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. We could end up in a project where we we will just like pivot, maybe backtrack a little bit, and then get on the path of of going down a different uh, idea that we kind of you know thought of originally. Um, but if consumers start to kind of play with the product and initial prototypes, and it seems like it's underwhelming and, and not delivering to the level that the written concept did. Uh, that's, you know, that's not that, that could be an indication that the technology and your capabilities aren't really um, up to standard to deliver on kind of what you would promise for the consumer. So that would be kind of one area. Another KPI is, of course, kind of the units per skew per week that would be in your shop test if you um, are able to set up a shop test at the end of an innovation project. Right. I, I think, you know, unfortunately, for many like growing smaller 
businesses and brands, uh, that's that's oftentimes not an option. Um, but for kind of a lot of like mid-level or, or larger like legacy brands and big food companies, um, you know, you have the resources to kind of be able to to work with a, an established retail partner, get an innovation on shelf, and kind of see how it does. And so, you know, we have a lot of existing data on past uh, innovations that have you know flopped for us, and we'll typically have a, a threshold in in projected revenue that we want to hit, right? Like a, a size of prize that we want to see this product or innovation really capture. And if we start to see metrics mm-hmm. like the units per skew per week not kind of live up to the the standards and, and KPIs that we're looking for, then um, that's kind of what we would consider an underperforming product and something that we might want to, you know, uh, discontinue focus and, and resources on. That's awesome. I hope that's helpful to a lot of our listeners who mm-hmm. wonder how they're judging and measuring their products for discontinuation. So, um, yeah, just review your products and understand what your North Star metric was. It really is like units per skew per week. And then also getting the chance to kind of talk to consumers to understand if it's underperforming, like why is it underperforming? Is it something that's like an easy fix, Um, right? Like, is it a communications thing, a lack of understanding, or is it just the product is not good enough? Um, You know, there's so many variables that can uh, be attributed to success or failure of a product. Just because a product fails doesn't mean the actual product within the packaging is a bad product. It could have been your positioning, the messaging, the brand that you launch it under. And I think that happens a lot in big food companies is a great product and an innovation gets launched under a brand. And it's just the wrong brand for consumers to really, you know, latch onto and enjoy Right. Um, and that can be for a number of reasons as well. But I think also too, to kind of speak to, you know, uh, some of the founders that are maybe listening and, and the smaller size companies and stuff that that could be, you know, listening right now. I think that when you are innovating and you're, and you're in a position where you already kind of have your established products, right? Like something I think that can be, um, you know, that can hurt founders in early stage companies is innovating too soon. You know, like you, you're trying to find a solution for more money to be coming in. The reality is you just need to sell. And it's selling your core product and, and the core offering. And if that's not doing well, then it might be an entire pivot from that core product to you need to find a new core product. Um, but if you are at the point where, you know, you have an established, you know, flagship product, you know that, you know, you're not going to sink too quickly. Uh, things kind of go south. You have a little bit of insulation and stability um, and you can innovate. You want to be able to cut bait real quickly, right? Like if you're seeing a product mm-hmm. underperforming in stores, um, you're running product tests with consumers. Don't just say, well, we just spent four, five, six, 12 months on this innovation. We can't give it up now. Letting yourself get emotionally tied to an innovation like that, you're, you end up making decisions with your ego and not with, you know, uh, with the leadership and, and business brain that you've been able to develop over, over all this time. So I think you need to try and, and really put yourself in a position where you can be objective and look at it without the emotion and say, the numbers are not working out. So we need to step away from this and move on. And I think, you know, Mark Samuel from uh, I want organics, he made a post uh, a couple months ago. Now I want to say where he launched an innovation last year, it underperformed and he cut bait real quickly. Right. And I commend him for that because it's it's not easy to do. You know, it's tough and it's tough to go from being so excited maybe a month or two ago to, oh, you know, the results kind of come in and you're like, we can't do this anymore. Right. And uh, some people will continue because they want to save face and, and not like seem like something failed so quickly. But the reality is his business is probably a lot better because he's not putting any more resources and funding into that into that product anymore and, and focusing on things that do really work for him. Yeah, listen, if anyone tells you they only launch 100% of winners, yeah. they're lying, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Being able to, like you said, cut the line um, mm-hmm. as soon as you know you need to yep. is one of the greatest strengths that, you know, small 
you know, FBA sellers, private label sellers have um, and can have. So yeah. Um, speaking to that point, then um, where else are you focused then off Amazon? Obviously, we're a Amazon kind of focused agency here. Mm-hmm. But where are all are you focused all the retail locations or the big ones that you're kind of focused on? Yeah. You're saying outside of Amazon? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll partner with uh, with Kroger. We'll partner with um, like Giant Eagle. Um you know, fortunately, you know, for us, Nestle products, we have like 95% household penetration. It's like something ridiculous, right? So uh, we're really fortunate that we have a lot of great partners and, and uh, you know, a lot of them are, are willing to work with us. It is always like we still do sell the product in, right? Like it's not like, you know, it isn't as easy as a phone call. Fortunately, we know that our calls will get answered, right? But uh, sometimes things end up being, you know, hey, we can't do this right now. Um because it's really tough, right? We go from having a, an idea and we don't really know what the physical product's going to be until a couple months before we really want it to be on shelf. So, you know, it, it takes uh, us selling the product in and, and really finding, you know, one of our great partners that have the right timing um, and resources to be able to allocate to, to helping us out with something like this. So, yeah, I, you know, we've done, we've done work with Kroger. We've done work with Giant Eagle, a couple others as well. And just kind of those like main... Um, conventional, you know, grocery channels, big focus. We've also done a test on Amazon as well um, in the past with a product. And we, we launched a product exclusively on Amazon uh, for the first few months. And I think it still lives there now. Uh, it's called Boosted Brew. It's like a keto, kind of like a keto butter um, that you like mix into coffee. Um, so we did our, our initial like innovation test on there. And then, you know, afterwards it, it did really well. And so we continue to sell it on Amazon today. Coming from your point of view, I'm sure you can appreciate all the Amazon gives sellers and, you know, product designers, right? You can go read yeah. the reviews and see what people don't like about your product, easy yeah. improvements you can make. Um, so I'm sure you you definitely notice those benefits, too. So cool, man. I wanted to jump over to actually a LinkedIn post you made today regarding yeah. the Carter and Oak brand and how you kickstarted that. Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely mentioned using local micro influencers as a great way to bring up brand awareness figure that has a trusted audience to vouch yeah. for your product. Right. Yeah. Um, before you really have ratings and reviews in a, a raving audience, mm-hmm. in addition to sampling your product outside of near retail locations. So like you said, maybe it was a gym near uh, yeah. a grocery store that carried your product. Just curious. Not many people do the whole brick and mortar situation anymore. Like you had the opportunity with Carter and Oak. Mm-hmm. What could this look like today in the e-commerce space, maybe for a brand on Amazon or even just with a Shopify website? Like what does that come to market strategy look like today? I think that's tough, right? Like I think there is a lot of value in being able to hand sell a product to somebody, right? Like, and that's you know, early on, it can help really kind of get those evangelical consumers on board, you know, people that are, are then going to go and do the marketing and selling for you. Wow. I just bought this product. I love it for this reason. I love it for that reason. Right. Um, they're going and they're telling everybody about it. You know, for me, I, I think even, you know, still some of that in person, like brick and mortar, uh, sampling demos, showcases, whatever kind of product it might be, whether it's CPG or otherwise, it can still be really valuable to go and do stuff in person, especially if you're really strategic kind of in the way that you, you go about it, you know, it's all about kind of, getting into a community, right? So with me kind of going in and doing these demos at cycle studios or yoga studios, CrossFit gyms, they are really tight knit, very kind of uh, passionate communities. And, you know, one person ends up loving a product and adopts that product. 
it's not unlikely that the rest of the gym will then pick it up and start using it too, right? They're really going off recommendations from each other. So that's how you can build like a really strong community around your product. And that's how, you know, RX Bar grew their brand to be what it is because they were going from CrossFit gym to CrossFit gym, finding these, these tribes of evangelical consumers and they had a product that spoke to them really well, right? So they met their customers where they were. They made a really easy, low friction for them to sample the product, to try it. And it was a very easy avenue for them to go and buy it. So I think even if you're selling a product 100% on Amazon as well, going kind of doing a showcase or, or doing demos and whatever else in person with these groups that are really passionate and will bounce off each other, you can then drive them. To, it's easy. Who doesn't shop on Amazon, right? If you're they're like, hey, where, where can I buy this? And you're like, Amazon. They're like, okay, great. You know, like it's, it's super easy for them. So I think, you know, based on the experience that I have in everything and kind of seeing how that might be able to translate to success on Amazon, I think, you know, that would kind of be an approach that I would take. And it's, it's tough to scale, right? Like that's, that's a question I get too. Is like, well, then how do you scale that, Kyle? I did it in the Philadelphia area and, and our retailers were really kind of focused in that region. Um, so it was easy for us to do that, right? Because if we did one demo, it didn't just kind of cover us for one retailer we were selling and it covered us for multiple. Um, so really tough to scale, but there's a lot of other great, you know, platforms, um, you know, like WeStock, Sample, Sampler, these different platforms that will allow you to essentially give like a free product. And then, you know, they, these consumers can go and buy product on shelf and then they get, you know, reimbursed through Venmo and stuff. Um, so there's always like a ton of different plugins that you can try out, but um yeah, I think that's kind of a way you can bring that brick and mortar approach to an Amazon only product. Um, yeah. So I think if that, I mean, there's a few other things too that I can talk to, but I think that probably answers your question. It's funny how this marketing cycle is coming back around where back in the day, people could throw their product up on Amazon, mm -hmm. maybe with minimal to little or no marketing yeah. and it would sell really well versus now as competitive as it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're almost coming back to this you have to get in front of your customer face to face. You know, we yeah. had um, dude wipes, uh, Sean Riley on, on mm -hmm. our show here weeks and weeks ago. Yep. And uh, you know, he kicked to started his brand obviously on shark tank, but mm -hmm. you know, they get their signs out at the world series and put it up behind the announcers. Like yeah. it's that guerrilla marketing yes. in person boots on the ground, getting your product name out there that really builds you a passionate audience. And it's how you did it. And I think that, that method isn't lost just because you sell your product mm -hmm. online, like you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think it's it, it, it's funny you bring that up. That makes me think like another thing that I did, too, was I actually um, and I posted about this. I don't even know, maybe a week or two ago. But the one time, you know, there's this big fitness convention called the Arnold Fitness Expo or Bodybuilding Expo or whatever it is. And it's in Columbus every year. And uh, we didn't. You know, so it's like all these supplement brands and vitamin brands and, you know, high protein snack brands, everything like that. That it's a, this massive convention. Right. And so. Um, it's not just like industry professionals. It's also, you know, people that will go and are fans of bodybuilding or people that are just like really into fitness and health and they'll go and, and check out all the, all the brands and products and get a ton of samples and everything. And we didn't have the money to go and exhibit, but I drove, you know, one guy that, that was on my team and, and myself to the show. And we bought just like, you know, uh, passes to go and like, you know, visit the show. And I brought a bunch of these like portable freezers that I had that plugged into my car to keep like ice cream. Uh, frozen. And then we packed our backpacks with all the ice cream and we snuck them into the expo. And then we had little like marketing cards that, you know, talked about the product. And we just went to all these lines of people that were waiting, you know, to get these, these samples and, and talk to these people sitting at the, at these uh, like exhibitor tables. And we just hit all the people in line and we're giving them ice cream and talking about the story. And, you know, that for us, we were able to convert, you know, sales online and then drive social media and everything else. And, like that was great for us. So yeah, so those those guerrilla, guerrilla marketing techniques are 
are awesome. And, you know, then there's always the find the right people to share your story on TikTok and Instagram or whatever else it might be. Right. But it's getting, you know, every day it gets a little bit harder to cut through that noise. Um, so it's, yeah. you know, always kind of trying to figure out what, what connects best with your consumers and try and be, try and be radical, do something in a, in a crazy, you know, in a crazy way that stands out and speaks to what your product is and, and who the brand is. Yeah. And I know you can appreciate it as much as, you know, anyone coming from your seat, but like, think like your customer, like what would be exciting yeah. to them? Um, not just like product, but like a message from a brand, like, Hey, we have this cool new product. We'd love you to try. Like, what does mm -hmm. that interaction look like from the customer's point of view? And how do you make it exciting? Like, that's how you have to think as a marketer today to, to cut through that. Yeah, noise. yeah absolutely. Like, you know, show them why it's going to work. Like you can't sell a, a, a better for you product that's high in protein and just say, Hey, we have 12 grams of protein. That's why you should buy us. Right. Like what's that emotional tie that's going to get them going. You know, for me, it was my mom at my mom, you know, passed away after a seven year battle with colon cancer. Right. So I was able to connect with so many people that also saw people in their family struggling with cancer, understood the problem that I was solving and, you know, they understood the product immediately. Right. Um, and so it's, it's trying to find that connection on the emotional level to be able to provide the great product that you, you've, created um you know you, you can't just sell from just saying like hey like this is why we're great this is why we're great this is why we're great come and buy us it's really show them what it's going to do for their life how it fits in and and find that emotional that emotional connection that can get people you know excited about the product absolutely that's a great segue into the next thing i wanted to shout out which is the video mm -hmm. series you're coming out with around user generated content um, yeah. how has this worked for you guys in, you know, your own products, your own listings and marketing mm -hmm. efforts? Yeah. Um, so it necessarily, unfortunately, I don't get to like do a lot of that, right. Because a lot of the stuff we're doing, if it were to go viral on TikTok, would actually be a bit like a bad thing because we're two years out from launching it nationwide. So it's like, you know, we'd be able to get a really good pulse of kind of how consumers feel about it, but that's like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's a blessing and a curse in that situation because then, you know, all of our competitors can see the product and be like, Oh God, maybe we need to work on that too. So when we do, when we do work on these things, we're really kind of, you know, particular in the, in the exposure and the risk that we, that we take on and in what we end up putting out into the world. You know, I, I think that, uh, what, you know, for what I'm doing, it's kind of like a personal branding thing that I'm the reasons why I'm doing it. And also it's just something I like to do. I'm already, you know, going out, I have a, a piece of my budget cut out strictly for like CPG discovery and, and like going and just buying new products and brands, um, that I've like never tried before. And, you know, I am, I committed this year. I started a couple weeks before the new year, but committed to posting on LinkedIn every single day. And, uh, and honestly, like I went in and like looked at what some of my top posts were and, uh, there were two themes in what my top posts consistently were coming from. And it was stories about me having been a founder and like lessons that I've learned and, and like different, uh, different like pain points and stuff like that um, throughout, you know, the five years of me being a founder. And then the other one was when I would post about other brands and kind of share like my opinion on branding or the design or the actual product itself, potential innovation. So talking and sharing kind of like my perspective on other products and brands. So I thought it would be a really cool way for me to give exposure to new brands and also a way for me to kind of check out new brands myself and, and then also make content for it. Right. So I, I thought it would be uh, good for many reasons. And so I'm, I'm excited to kick it off. I didn't expect to get as much kind of responses as, as I did. I had a lot of people fill out that form. I had to shut it down. Um, so I, I'm excited <laughs> to get started on that for sure. 
That's awesome. You're going to be the spokesman of uh, 2023 for new products and brands. We'll see. Yeah, it's it's not a bad place to be. There's some awesome brands that reached out that I'm, I'm really excited to dive into. Um, and I think UGC as a whole is like, you know, of course, kind of growing. And I think there's becoming a better delineation between the, you know, the creators and the influencers, because I think that that's like a really important distinction to be made. Not all creators are influencers. And, you know, I think most influencers are creators. Um, but not every creator is an influencer and that's okay. Right. But I, I think that when you're entering into a relationship, uh, with an influencer or an influencer or a creator is entering into a relationship with a brand, like that kind of needs to be understood. Like, what do you think I'm meant to do? And like, what do you want me to do for you as a creator? Right. Um, I think brands sometimes don't understand that and maybe they want too much from somebody and yeah. vice versa. Right. So that's a great call out. And the first time I've ever heard that delineation between influencers and content creators, like what you're asking an influencer to do is not what you're asking a content creator to do necessarily. You know, influencers have the audience. They're an advertising channel for you. Content creators are just that they're giving you content to go repurpose, repost, share. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that's a good decision. Yeah. yeah, because like you're not you can't expect a like there's really great creators that have 300 followers, right? Like that doesn't mean that they're a bad creator, that they can't make the content. They don't understand the trends or how to edit a video and how to film and all this other stuff. They just don't have a following, right? Maybe it comes in a few years, but like at that time and place, 300 followers doesn't dictate their value, but it is very different to have somebody with 300 followers, make you a video that you then have to go and distribute. But then if you go and find an influencer that can create a video for you, but also put it in front of, 500,000 people and they're, you know, they have proof of conversion or proof of high engagement. The value there is very different too. So for the brands, they need to really understand, are we running a campaign with this partner, the social partner, I'll call it creator or influencer, are we running this campaign for awareness or are we running it for conversion? You know, if you're running it for awareness, work with somebody that does UGC, you know, it's going to cost you less. And you can also then, you know, pay somebody that's trying to grow a small business, right? Or, or a side hustle, whatever it might be. And they can be really highly skilled, but it's kind of like a new age, like videographer, you know, freelancer, essentially, right? It's just, we're giving them a new name. They're a creator. Videographers are creators too. They just have fancier cameras. So, you know, it's, it's really just understanding that difference and not asking too much for them. And then I think of the opposite side, creators need to understand that their value is different than an influencer because you know creators aren't going to drive the same type of conversion and otherwise. So, I think it's kind of a little bit of having to understand your position, where you're coming from, and then everybody can be happy. Well, again, I wanted to shout out that UGC video series coming out. Thank Super you. excited to Appreciate see it. that and be supporting you on this side. Yeah. My last question for you here mm-hmm. is, you know, with everything going on in the, the larger economy in the last year, and, yeah. you know, I think where we are today is a very different sentiment than where we were, you know, beginning of January, 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, so how much of has, you know, the current environment uh, kind of made some changes to your guys's, you know, product launches, marketing strategies for for this year. Because I know a lot of you know sellers we work with and talk to are like, how do we navigate this? Like, do we continue stepping on the gas? Do we back off and save some cash? Like, what mm-hmm. what are we doing? Um, I guess question is, what are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, again, it, for me being at Nestle, um, I'm really fortunate, you know, to be at a company that still performs really, really well in these tough times. Um, you know, ideally, it's not at the expense of, of other companies too. Uh, supply chain obviously is very indicative of that, right? You know, some brands are able to get on shelf a little bit easier than others in terms of just the supply that they have available to them. 
for us, it's it's really, you know, making sure that we are continuing to push brands that have been around for, you know, 50 plus years, uh, making sure that we are keeping them alive and relevant, right? Like really making sure that they, they're not going to become extinct. Um, so it's not always the innovation that we're doing might not always necessarily be like earth shattering innovation, but it can be kind of like, you know, internal innovation. That's really exciting for us as a company, because, you know, we just increase the longevity of a brand and, and product line significantly by a few changes that we make. Right. And so being really conscious of kind of the, the attention, um, the adaptation of, of brands and, and evolution of brands to continue to keep them relevant. Um, you know, I think that we are, are a little bit more probably staying a little bit more conservative. Um, but we still have a massive R and D and innovation department. And we were fortunate to be really profitable last year. And, you know, I'm certainly not somebody at the company to like be a spokesperson for Nestle. Right. So everything that I'm sharing is really from like my perspective, my perspective. I'm, I'm not the the CEO or the, or the chief strategy officer or anything like that. Right. So they're, they're definitely better people to kind of be able to sit and be a spokesperson for Nestle per se. But from my understanding and, and being in, in R and D and working on the innovation projects right now, you know, we're adding more innovation projects this year. Um, we have, you know, ambitious goals to kind of test things out. And, and we're really fortunate that, you know, we have a, we have a company that's been able to, to continue to fuel innovation and support innovation, even through pretty difficult times. But, you know, we certainly are, are really conscious of the budget and spending that we have project to project. And, uh, you know, we don't want to waste a dollar um, in, in any part of the business. So, you know, maybe you could say that there is a little bit more uh, focus and diligence in the spending. But I think that Nestle as a whole is where they are today because they've had that their entire life. So. Yeah, that's a that's a really strong answer. Fine tune, button up your your winners, your strong mm-hmm. drivers of your business. For you guys, yeah. that's your longest standing brands. For a small seller of two years, maybe that's your top selling product. Is you know perfect that thing. Use this time as maybe high tides going out to to make sure that that thing is in the best position possible to continue winning. Um, but then also on the flip side, of that, like you said, like you don't need to cut all testing and advertising on our side. Yeah, because um, if you do that, I mean you're, you're going to die by failure to innovate. Yep. Um, so I think that is a, a fine balance. Um, great answer there. Thank Last, you. I actually have one more question for you. Yep. Um, I didn't want to end on that kind of sour note of a, of a, you know, weakening economy, but, uh, yeah, yeah all good. you know, you're, you're, uh, such a, you know, strong business guy with, you know, all the experience you guys, or all Appreciate the experience it. you have, what, um, what sources of, of knowledge are you pulling from? What thought leaders do you follow? Um, we just love to give some shout outs to some of the names you've learned from. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that I still pull a lot from other startup founders, right? Like I think, uh, they're not, I, you know, they're celebrated a lot, but I don't know if they're always necessarily given enough credit, especially from the big food world. Right. It's been really interesting for me to kind of see that dynamic going from founder to jumping into the largest CPG company in the world. You know, so I pull from a lot of founders and it, there's a lot of nuance and learnings to get from people that are like, kind of stumbling their way through. Right. And that's not a bad thing. I I think, you know, so many founders, I just talked to the, before this call, I just talked to a founder that's been in business, you know, um, since like 2015, really successful company and same type of thing, having the conversation with him. And like, there's still certain things he's like stumbling his way through. Right. Like I think you're a founder and you start from nothing. You kind of almost always feel that way. And you, you never feel like you're safe really. Right. Some definitely uh, counseling like I look at and and really enjoy kind of pulling some knowledge from and, and experiences from her. Uh, Zach France from Wildland Coffee, Erica Rankin, 
from Brodo, uh, Mark Samuel from I Want Organics. Definitely follow uh, Sean from uh, from Dude Wipes too. I think he's great. Of course, like the big names that you can always look to. I actually really like uh, Rohan Oza, I think is how you say his last name. I might be butchering his last name, but he was on Shark Tank a little bit. Big CPG guy, um, owns uh, Kava Ventures, uh, big like CPG focused VC. Um, he's brilliant. I don't, you know, he's got some stuff on LinkedIn here and there, but I just really like to kind of like follow what he does. And I just kind of started getting on Twitter a little bit more and finding like more people. To, so I don't really have anybody just yet. I would actually love any recommendations on the Twitter side of people to follow um, because I'm working on, I'd love to have more competency on like the Amazon selling and advertising and marketing side myself, because that's something I probably have a little bit less experience in, um, but would love to understand a little bit better. Uh, and make in building an ice cream brand, you know, e-commerce wasn't really the wasn't really a great option, unfortunately. But it's something that I'm looking to to build a lot stronger over the next year or so. So, um, really looking to find some more people in those areas. Awesome! I think we're uh, looking at getting onto Twitter ourselves. So we'll uh, nice. maybe meet you over there and and grow the e-commerce audience on Twitter a little bit together. Yeah, yeah. There's there's you know I don't know what it was. I just wasn't really on it much, and you know, recently jumped on and. There's these really cool communities of, you know, CPG, like these little like CPD, CPG hubs, yeah. uh, little like D to C hubs, these like, you know, operations hubs. There's definitely Amazon hubs and everything else. So it's kind of like finding those groups of people. And, you know, there's a lot of people with some really great, really great experience and value to add. So. 100%. Well, hopefully, you know, people come and follow Kyle Peters. Now, this is a, a guy that you guys def- should definitely be following with CPG background. Again, growth hacker to the max, I think, is an understatement. So um, so thanks so much for being here today, Kyle. Appreciate your time. We'll uh, love to have you back another time and uh, hope you have a great rest of your day.